Welcome to Fully Booked. My name is Adam. And my name is Frank. And we are Fully Booked. Uh, Frank, you work with computers for a living. Do old people ask you to fix their computers? All the time. All the time. <laughs> I, I feel like I can't escape the ever-loving world, and I say that sarcastically, of tech support. I am the tech support for the family, and for anybody that finds out that I do computer work. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't mind it at work. It's funny at work because, I mean, I guess I, I'm really an ed tech coach. Like I, I coach teachers on how to use technology in the classroom, but you also end up being tech support for things. So people are always very apologetic. They're like, I'm sorry to bother you. And I'm always like, no, that's like, you're keeping me in business. But my neighbor who's like 75, I was, he was in his yard today and I was like, I don't, I don't have time to talk. I love my neighbor to death. He's fantastic. But I was like, I'm going to stay on the front porch out of sight and sweep. <laughs> and I hear Adam, come here. <laughs> I was like, yes. And he's like, I think my computer's got a virus. It keeps talking to me about McAfee. It's like, I'll be right there. And then 45 minutes later, I left. I've I've been in the same boat before as you. What I do is I just tell people, oh, that's not the type of tech support I do. They don't know what I'm talking about. I just, I tell a white lie and to get myself out of it. I work exclusively in the abacus. <laughs> it's It's tough too. I mean, I get people don't, understand the intricate workings of computers. And I, I do get at times people like, well, how do you do that? This and that. And to be honest, I didn't come from this background either. I was a business student. I mean, it just it was just an interest I took up at the time. And it was constant research, constant noodling. Same with what I do for a career doing web development. I wasn't a programmer by trade. I learned how to do that. It was just an interest that I, I took a, a kinship to. And, you know, I kind of went from there. Yeah. I think I feel like we've fallen into similar camps because I have absolutely no tech training whatsoever, <laughs> which is always my, because I, I have a lot of teachers at work that are like, I, I just, I am so bad at technology. Like, I'm sorry. And I'm like, no, like you can, a lot of it's mindset. I was like, I don't, I don't know anything about anything. <laughs> um, and I sound like, I don't have a background in this. Like, you know, it's fine. You got to play with it. It's it's looking stuff up. And I think one of the skills that people are intimidated by is how to look stuff up. They don't know that they can go to Google, for example, and search for it. Or they, they do, but they don't know what to search. Because that actually becomes what I've learned over time from what I do. That becomes a skill in and of itself is knowing how to search for the right thing. And then you may not always find it on the initial search right away. So then you got to know how to iterate on it. Right. And it's, it's, it is, it is a, a challenging thing. And I get people who say, look, I don't have any interest in this. I just want it to work. Yeah. I completely get that. And I'll be honest, even as myself, who's been doing this 10 years plus now, I have no love loss for technology. It's a means to an end for me. There are certain tech things I still like, but for the most part, a lot of it I find to be a headache because even for me, it still doesn't do things that I think it should do in terms of performance, for example. Right. And so I understand where people are coming from. Yeah. You start to get more frustrating knowing what it what it can do. Well, you'll be happy to know that I fixed my neighbor's problem, <laughs> as I always do. Oh, excellent. Because I, I love my neighbors. They're great. And his problem was there was no, no problem. <laughs> he didn't think his email was going through. His email was going through. Everything was fine, but it's, you know, it's, he's an, he's an older person. So he bought his computer from Walmart, which is just filled up with bloatware that you can't remove and it's slow as molasses. That's mistake number one, but obviously he doesn't know that, yeah. you know, so I, I would never do that myself and neither would you, you know, but you know, when somebody doesn't know they, that's how they get, that's how they get you. Yeah. It was funny though. Well, I brought my son over and I was like, all right, 
Silas, let's let's figure this one out because he likes playing around with computers. My neighbor is a talker. So he's like, yeah, I just like some of the things you find on the Internet. Crazy. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yes. <laughs> Do tell. He's like, well, I was looking at like, for example, <laughs> one time I was looking up uh, the White House. I swear I was just looking into the White House and I ended up on this old skin mag, which was also called White House. <laughs> like, uh huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, you know, internet is mostly pornography. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I read somewhere it's 90% pornography. I was like, you know, my seven-year-old's standing right here, right? Oh, geez. And yeah, you don't, yeah, he, he has no, um, no filter, no concept of the, the, the audience in front of him. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, you probably, uh, you probably know more about computers than I do, Silas. And Silas was like, I coded a robot earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Case in point. Yep. <laughs> well, Frank, summertime. Is almost here. With summer, with the changes in seasons, comes summer reading season. So are you ready for that? Do you have a list of what you plan to read? I do have a list. And since we're you know finishing up our current book club book, uh, Charles Bukowski's Ham on Rye, which we will talk about again in a future episode. If you haven't listened to the initial impressions episode, that was two episodes ago. You could check that out. But one of the things I'm looking forward to getting back to reading the next quote unquote section of, and it's the first one on my summer reading list, is to finish Written in Bone by Sue Black. Now, I talked a little bit about this on an earlier episode of just a book haul, one of our book haul episodes, which is in our earlier uh, backlog when we first started the podcast. What I'm really interested to see, and I don't even remember what the next section is. So very interesting that the book has like almost a section format rather than chapters, as we've noted before. But what I'm really excited with this one is I found the first chapter, and I could talk a little bit about more about it here rather than the book haul episode. So she talks about in the first section, after you get through the prelude, about her describing her job, how they handle cases when they're called to the scene, what types of questions they have to ask. The first scene, the first section, I should say, talks about the human skull and how they can use various pieces of evidence from the human skull to catch a killer, for example. And the piece of evidence that she shares that really stood out to me that I still think about is if you're a man and you feel the back of your head, you have a bump there. And she said, in men, it's more pronounced than in women. So that's one of the identifying details that they use to determine, is the deceased a man or a woman? So she talked about that. She talked about, and I've always wondered what it was. She talks about the bone in your ear, in your ear, your upper ear, where that comes from, why that's the, like, you know, why that's there. And these little pieces, and then she'll take a story, like an actual case. She'll disguise the names to protect, to give privacy to the victims, but she'll give you a case, how that was applied to that scenario. But what she does a fantastic job of is she is able to take a very complex scientific verbiage, which is really the whole thing. She could talk about it in scientific verbiage, which then nobody would understand. She gives that description first, then she dumbs it down for all the, the plebes like me <laughs> who have no idea what she's talking about. And she says, okay, let's give you a case example now. And she'll go into that. And that's by far my favorite part is when she starts talking about the case scenarios. Yeah. And it's really gruesome because these are real things that happened, almost like unfathomable things that you're like, oh my God, I can't believe this is actually a thing. But yeah, it's real life. It's something that actually is happening and she's seen a lot of it. And I find the whole book fascinating. I didn't know how much I would like it at first. I was a big CSI fan growing up. So I said, let me read about it for real. I would watch stuff like uh, Forensic Files and I've always loved that kind of stuff. So I was like, I must 
find something in this book. And so far, I've really liked it. Now, I haven't read it in a while, but luckily, it's not something you need to sit down. And if you put it away, you're not going to remember where it is. It's, it's broken off and it's nonfiction. So it's not something, you know, you can read it when you have the time available. My only knock on it thus far, AJ, and I've talked to you about this before, is as people listening may know, I am not a big fan of long chapters. And since these aren't chapters, these sections can go on for like 40 pages. And that to me is just really hard to feel like you're accomplishing something. That's my biggest knock yeah. on this style of writing. And I was wondering if you can maybe enlighten me a little bit on why this style of writing is a thing. It's not of knowledge to me. Uh, it sounds like it maybe, even though there are longer sections, there are subsections within, even even if they're not broken out as such. So like you said, there's case in the first one, like she covers cases after after she covers like the scientific portion of things. So that's right. I mean, it could be if I were breaking it down, like maybe that would be my stopping points is like, okay, well, now we're moving into the case. So even though this isn't a new chapter, I'm going to treat it as such. I believe she does have subsections, like you're saying, of the overall main section, but it's not from what I can recall and what I have seen. I don't remember seeing any of those subsections, but I did notice when the pacing of the book and the and the topic being discussed changed to where it, I, I can actually vividly recall it now where a light bulb would go off in my head and I'd be like, this seems like it doesn't belong in this chapter. You know what I mean? Like I was like, this is where the chapter should have ended and you should now proceed to the next one. But obviously, since she's doing it in this format, that's not the case. Right, right. And that's kind of how you have to approach it. I recently read Outsmart Your Brain by, I forget the guy's name, you'll have to Google it, but it's it's called Outsmart Your Brain. And it's it's suggestions, one, to teachers on how to structure things better, uh, but it's a dual audience. It's You're either going to be a teacher or a student reading this. And the suggestions to students are exactly that. Like, hey, if you run into someone who hasn't structured something well or broken it down good enough for you, like you really need to seek out the pattern here. Like, where's the natural break that they're not revealing? Which it sounds like you've picked up on that, as annoying as it might be. That's the biggest thing. It was it's a very annoying feeling because when say you're tired from reading and you're like, all right, I've had enough for now. And I have a very big, difficult time with stopping midway. Yes passage or a, or a chapter, I need to finish it. If I've made the commitment to sit down and read something, yep. I'm going to finish that, at least that chapter. You know what I mean? But with the section, when something's 40 or 50 pages long, you're like, all right, I need to strap in and prepare for the long haul that I'm going to get through this. And I did with the first uh, section on the skull. I yep. said, I'm, I'm making sure I read it. And it was very good. Like I said, but I think at times maybe a little unnecessarily long, I like the examples. I like how she breaks things down. I think she writes well, but I don't like almost the unnecessary, I feel, long chapters. And that's just a personal preference. Sure. Maybe a lot of it could be footnoted. I'm kind of the same way. I, If I knew it was going to be, even if I were ready to stop reading in 10 minutes, I would have to finish like a 40, 50 page section. <laughs> I'm like, there's a section break. Yeah. I could not stop myself. Like I was like, this must be done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. It's very nice. That's book number one. So, Freck, every year I participate in, we don't have a name for it, but I've I've kind of dubbed it myself the Anti-Beach Reading Book Club. And I've been doing this since 2017 with a buddy of mine that lives up the street, where we pick an obnoxiously difficult, we just pick something heavy. So, for example, our our 
book in 2017 was Moby Dick. That was our summer read was we're going to read Moby Dick and, and we nerd out on it. So we'll like, <laughs> we'll get together for dinners and we'll theme the dinners around the book. So Moby Dick was the first one. Second one was Blood Meridian. COVID broke up the third year, but somewhere in there around Christmas, we tried to read he- every Henry play that Shakespeare wrote and we burned out on that one. Then we read War and Peace the following summer, which is like 1300 pages long, but one of the best books I've ever read. Middle March was last year. And then this year is... Vanity Fair from 1848, which is a chunker of a book. How is that going so far? Uh, it's it's interesting. I, I've just started it last night, so I'm not very far. I'm only about 18 pages in. I'm three chapters in. And it's one of those things where if you're reading a book from the 1800s, you got to give it a chapter and then it starts to get a little smoother. But the claim to fame here is so Vanity Fair is by William Makepeace Thackeray. It is a novel without a hero. And there's some interesting narrative breaks in here where like I I expect something very specific for an an English novel from the mid 1800s. But the narrator keeps breaking into the narrative to tell you certain things about why the characters are not heroic. And so far, at least, again, I'm only three pages in. um, It's these two characters are leaving essentially a boarding school. And the one character is beloved by the boarding school and the other character is hated by the boarding school. And she's just getting kind of shoved away and placed in another house because the lady that runs a boarding school can't stand her and she's just obnoxious and it's wonderful like one of the going away presents is a dictionary this nice dictionary so the whole first chapter is like the headmistress of this place is writing a nice note to the one girl and she's making sure that she has the dictionary and one of the helpers is like we have to give the other girl a dictionary she's like no 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 no. she's terrible don't give her a dictionary but she sneaks one out to the girl anyway and then on their way out the girl just chucks it out the window back at the lady (laughs) and she's like here's your gift here's what i think about it i hated my time here so it's interesting because I'm expecting like, you know, you presented like everyone's expected to be prim and proper, but then there's this awful person who's also going to be the focus of the book. So I kind of like that. You know what I feel like you were describing? Remember the movie Matilda? Yes. Yeah, yeah, That's the picture I was getting. I don't know how accurate that is from, I'm sure it's a lot different in the book you're reading, but literally everything you were describing, I said, this sounds like Matilda. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, different, different time period. I've never actually, I, I remember the movie and my wife- uh, admonishes me every time I say this, but I've never actually seen Matilda. And I have the book, but I've never read the book. So I highly recommend watching Matilda, the one, and I don't know if there's more than one. The only one I know of is with the little girl. She was in Mrs. Doubtfire mm, yeah. with Robin Williams. She played the youngest one. I'm sure that's the one most people listening and most people are familiar with in general. Yeah. But yeah, you you may notice a parallel with what everything you just said. Okay. You'll see it in that. It'll it'll kind of blow your mind. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. I wonder if that's where that m- movie that this book you're reading got potentially some inspiration from. I don't know. Matilda, I think a lot of it has to do with the school itself and they're keep in mind they're exiting the school at the beginning of this book. So I have no idea where it's where it's going. I've I've I don't know much about this book and I've kind of purposely kept myself in the dark. Although I will read from Wikipedia, it's an English novel, follows the lives of Becky Sharp and Amelia Sedley. So Becky Sharp is the rude girl and Amelia is the nice, prim and proper girl amid their friends and families during and after the Napoleonic Wars. That's the interesting thing too. She's like, she's in the carriage talking, Becky's talking trash about the school as they're exiting. And Amelia's like, stop, the driver will hear you. And she's like, I don't care. And she basically says like, hail Napoleon, which like is a big no, no. (laughs) 
I'm like, this is my kind of character. I like this. Re- rebelling against authority in 1848. Actually, a big guy uh, did a big faux pas there. Big uh, no no. Well, and it's it's supposed to be like a, a deconstruction of the conventions at the time. Like the heroic novel was really big, and, and Thackeray just like apparently just busted that whole thing down with this book. So it's supposed to be the foundation of Victorian domestic novels. And at some point, I'm going to have this edition from 1938 on the beach with me, looking like a real <laughs> nerd. <laughs> My um, number two is actually the book I believe I'm going to pick for us to do our next book club book. I know one of the things we're probably going to do is take some time to read our summer picks. So I'll probably save after we've finished a book from our summer picks uh, before we go into this particular book for the next book club book. But this book is called Winner Takes All. This is by Christina Binkley. And it's Steve Wynn, Kirk Kokorian, Gary Loveman, and the race to own Las Vegas. Now, what drew me to this book, so I know, AJ, you've said before that a lot of books you've read have taken place in Vegas. And so that, that's that been an appeal to you. So kind of ironic as somebody like myself who loves reading about Las Vegas, um, that the two worlds from yours and mine kind of mesh here. So this kind of, this may be a perfect book, a book of hoping of interest to you as well. But basically one of the things I can mention before reading a little bit off the, the back of the book. So the people I just mentioned are considered the people who rebuilt Vegas took Vegas uh, away from the mob at the time, which was, uh, you know, Kirk Kikorian. He was one of the very first business personalities who really took Las Vegas by storm. And if I remember correctly, and I, I could be wrong about this, I remember Kikorian as being described as a germaphobe, like a very successful businessman, but a germaphobe pretty much made negotiations with the mob. Hey, you sell your casino to me and you leave Vegas and never come back type of thing. And Steve Wynn took over and started the boom of Las Vegas and the theming of hotels. If you think of you know hotels like Treasure Island, the Mirage, Bellagio, um, the Golden Nugget, these were all properties that he either created or he transformed. And none of them are involved in Vegas anymore. Interesting. Here's what a little bit of the back of the book says. I'll read the first little blurb here. Sin City, bright lights, high stakes, no sleep. Home to some of the world's grandest, flashiest, and most lucrative casino resorts, Las Vegas, with its multitude of attractions, draws some 40 million tourists from around the world every year. But Vegas hasn't always been booming at the level it is today. This newest influx is largely the result of three competing business moguls. Meet Kirk Kikorian, Steve Wynn, and Dr. Gary Loveman, men who couldn't be more different from one another, yet share the same tunnel vision determination to conquer the city that feeds the world's fantasies. So pretty much how they train the public and release their inhibitions to keep them coming back for more. And that kind of took a portion of a quote. I remember Steve Wynn quoting in a documentary once before. It was very fascinating hearing him talk about how he does what he does to get people interested in his properties, to make them come to Vegas to visit. And kind of like what everybody calls Las Vegas is adult Disneyland. Yeah, exactly what it is. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, this is a very interesting book on Vegas. I think it has the potential to be, particularly because it's not it's talking about more of the business mogul side of it. I'm almost looking at it into how it came to be type of thing. So I'm intrigued to see what more comes out of it. Fascinating. I'm always down for nonfiction. I've noticed I read a lot more of nonfiction than I would expect. 
normally I would think I only like fiction. I only like mysteries and thrillers, but it turns out I read a lot of nonfiction. A lot of it tends to be Las Vegas. <laughs> so I'm going to go in the graphic novel comic book route or direction for this next one. So The Nice House on the Lake volumes one and two by James Tinian the fourth. This should surprise no one at this point. Artist is Alvaro Martinez Bueno and Jordi Belair is the colorist. Uh, so I started reading Nice House on the Left like two years ago. <laughs> and then I, I missed at my comic book shop like the third issue and I couldn't get it for the longest time. And long story short, I have I have had 12 issues waiting for me for a long, long time. And it ends the first section. So I'm super excited for this one. Melding of the artwork in this horror story is pitch perfect with the writing itself, as is usually the case with the James Tinian the Fourth story. It essentially follows this uh, group of people who were invited to their old friend's house, a nice house on the lake, for a getaway. And when they get there, the world starts to fall apart outside of the lake area. So they check their phones and everybody in New York, sorry Frank, is just spontaneously combusting. The world is on fire and everybody is dying. And then they realize that the man who has invited them to this house has something to do. He's caused this to happen. They don't know exactly why. One of them tries to punch the guy and his flesh kind of dissolves and the person's arm explodes. And that's like the first issue. <laughs> it's intense. It's brutal. The artwork is gorgeous. The coloring is absolutely beautiful. It has this nice like kind of gr like duo gray and white tones until the action really starts. And then like the colors really pop, particularly when the fires start. I've, I've talked about Tinian a lot before, but if you're not reading Tinian, even if you don't like horror, like the perfectly constructed um, horror fiction or even just fiction for the comics medium, uh, anything that he writes. It sounds really intriguing. I especially like the whole idea that things happen elsewhere, but not this particular lake house. Yeah. I like how that's the only unfazed object. Yeah. Has a very eerie feel to it. And then it's like, we're stuck here. What do we mean? Like, we don't know why he did this. We don't know how he did this. Uh, we know that if we go up against him, it's not going to go well. But like, what the hell is going on? So you have this, this mystery element to it as well. And if I remember correctly, each issue starts with a character like atop of the rubble somewhere. So you get the sense of, oh, they do escape eventually and they look bad. And they look rough. Where is this? going and it's 12 issues and apparently this is just the first part so it's going to be a continuing series through dc's black label venture you know what it kind of makes me think of with like this like one centralized unaffected area it makes me think of that scene in lord of the rings remember when the ring is destroyed spoiler alert and we're talking about movies again, AJ. We're talking about movies again on a book podcast. Hey, Lord of the Rings is a book. <laughs> and the ground starts collapsing. Yeah. And and every and, and you got, you know, Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, they're all on that one piece of the land. Everything else is collapsing around them, but they're unaffected. Yeah. And they're in this one. It kind of gives that type of like destruction. Yeah. Visual. It's all around us, but we're unaffected, but we could easily be affected by it. Yeah, it's so close by, yet in the same way so far, and we're somehow escaping this doom. Yeah, yeah. I'm telling you, Tinian, 
best best comics writer out there right now for my money especially the stuff he's putting out with his own studio just just amazing yeah have you read world tree yet i haven't yet i've been behind on comics i did some comic reading last week did more book reading with uh bukowski's him on rye over the weekend um but it's i definitely want to to uh tend to my comic pile over here uh, you can do a little bit of a binge because issue two came out. I saw that. Yes. I, I want to read the first one to see if I like it. Um, I'm sure I'll find it enjoyable. I, Like I mentioned, it's my hesitancy to read independent work because of my made up fantasy in my own head of what comics are. And- you know, kind of like we talked about with you, like you told me, you can't listen to narrative podcasts, but you listen to Audible. Same, same, same type of, um, same type of dichotomy there. <laughs> Arbitrary rules, yeah. All right, so that's my second pick. So my third and final pick for my summer reading, and this turns out to be a bittersweet thing because I was actually a little disappointed when I found out, quote unquote, I have them all. And what do I mean by that? So. We talked about in previous episodes that I've been reading the Batman One Bad Day series, which oh, is- Oh, yes. Yes. And that is a play off of The Killing Joke. And this series, really each individual one is a one-shot comic, has reached its end and I didn't realize it. And I thought I was waiting all this time. I said, geez, when's DC going to put out the next, the next one? I have two more left to read and I'm thinking there's another one coming. Nope. So the two I have left, and I chose this one uh, to showcase that I want to read, is Batman One Bad Day, Ra's al Ghul, written by Tom Taylor. Uh, pencils are by Ivan Reese. Inks by Danny Mickey. Brad Anderson is the colorist, and Wes Abbott does the letters. That's and a stellar, that is a stellar writer-artist combination there. I actually am unfamiliar. I'm not much of a DC guy, so I'll take your word for it because I am not familiar with their writing teams, but yes, from the artwork. So Ivan Reese did do the cover art as well, and it's fantastic. I mean, in general, the artwork for the Batman One Bad Day series has been absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um, I think, in my opinion, this has been the best DC work I've read since the issues I've read of the Court of Owls storyline. Mm, okay. Even though these are each one shot, this is probably DC's, I think, best work. Well, Tom Taylor was on that. Um, Court of Owls was, I forget, uh, Scott Snyder. Yes. But Tom Taylor took over that series at one point for for quite the leg of it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'm sure this, 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 this one shot, I'm sure will be quite good then. If I liked Court of Owls, I'm sure he'll have those elements of, well- placed storytelling in this as well. Yeah. And, you know, in general, like to be honest, out of the entire Batman One Bad Day, I don't even know what to call it. I can't call it a series. I can't call it a miniseries. They're just one shots, but they're part of a series. It's it's weird. You know, that's that's where DC needed to be DC there. They yeah. couldn't they they said these are each one shots, standalone stories, but they're all under the same title. By the way, this is not a series, but it's a series. They do that a lot. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the only one I didn't like of this series so far is the Mr. Freeze storyline. So it, it each each one shot targets one of Batman's villains, their origin story, essentially where that villain came from, yeah, why he became the way he is. And the two that I've liked the most 
that are the most memorable in my mind. The furry first one, which was with the Riddler, hmm. that was the best one of them all. And believe it or not, Catwoman, I thought was the, the two best ones that I've read thus far. And I'm not really a big Catwoman fan, but her origin story, I mean, it was just a really well-told story. And like I mentioned, the artwork for these one-shots have been phenomenal. I don't have much of an attachment to Ra's al Ghul. I believe the last one is uh, Clayface. Oh, yeah. I remember he was in that lineup. Yeah. And I am saving that one for last. I don't really know much about that character, nor Ra's al Ghul, as I mentioned. But I'm still excited to read them because there have been characters who I may not be as familiar with through this series. Like I knew who Bane was, but not really familiar with the character. Um, and I mentioned, you know, I'm, pr- I'm pretty impressed to have only one particular story stand out is like, oh, this was dull. Yeah. Other than that, they've all been like, Good work, DC. Like that's all I can say. I was very tempted to to add it to my pull list, but I'm barely holding on to Batman as it is. Well, when you have 900 Batman titles, it's kind of makes it like, <laughs> yeah, it draws you away from wanting to read that because oh wow, look another Batman. That's the, like the equivalent of what Marvel does. Here's Star Wars number five thousand. Yeah, they have so many Star Wars titles, and and DC has so many Batman titles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But mainline, still holding on to mainline Batman. I just picked up the newest issue. We'll see. We'll see. So tempted to cut it off, but maybe I'll maybe I'll get these in trade. I assume these will all come out in one trade at some point. I wouldn't doubt it. I they normally do that after a certain period of time. I don't think there's probably going to be another, you know, a reissue of these these comics. I know that normally reissues normally only happen due to popularity. Right. Yeah. I don't know how popular these have been. I know from my talking to my comic shop, they've said people have liked them. Uh, and, and, and I've heard it's, you know, from the YouTube channel I watch, uh, from a comic book store, which I recommend you all check out the comic book palace YouTube channel. He does a new this week episode and it's kind of how I find out what comes out for the week for, for comics. He releases those videos every Tuesday. And he, even, he said, Massachusetts is where he's located. He said that people are liking this one and he is not a fan of all the Batman titles. He actually has the same reaction you do, AJ. So to hear people giving this series praise it further validates at least my own personal feeling of, yeah, I think it's good. I think it's worth reading. Okay. All right. I'm going to add that to my summer read list if the trade comes out in time. All right. So I'm going to blend a few things together for my last summer read here. I had a lot more, but like I just know I'm not going to read them. <laughs> like, I always have high ambitions. Really, what I should do is clear out all of the books that I started this year but have not finished. But on These Audible, are your realistic plans. Yes, realistic plans. Um, <laughs> on Audible, I've been doing a lot of re-reading. Um, so one of my favorite nonfiction writers is, is a guy named Brad Warner. Uh, and his first couple books, I've re- I just finished his first one again, and I checked my Goodreads, and I've read it four times. Um, now, most of those, I've only read it physically in paperback the first time. But then the Audible, I'll just start up every once in a while. The, the audio version is pretty fascinating. But he, so his first book is called uh, Hardcore Zen, Punk Rock, Monster Movies, and the Truth About Reality. It's the one that I just finished up. And I was shocked when I saw that this book existed because I was like, did somebody write this book specifically for me? This checks off every single box, like Godzilla movies, punk rock. Uh, Buddhism. It's it's all there. And that guy kind of vaguely at a glance looks like me, which is kind of weird. Um, I love his books. They're very accessible books on Zen Buddhism. They're not books that are going to sell a million copies. I contribute to his Patreon pretty regularly because so he's not selling a ton. 
Um, but they're they're really interesting. The first one is very heavy biography in which he's the guy that in the 80s, he was in a hardcore punk band um, in Akron, Ohio. Then he moved to Japan to teach English and he decided to go out on a limb and try and get a job at the company Subarai Productions that produces Ultraman. E.G. Uh, Subarai was the guy who did the special effects for Godzilla and he lands that job and then he falls into Zen Buddhism and, and he currently makes a living as a Zen priest. He lives out of, he works out of Los Angeles. Um, just really solid, practical upon rereading them. Like I really get the sense of like, Oh, I've, I've actually implemented a lot of the things that he's talking about and it's relieved a lot of stress in my life. Just solid approaches to how to deal with life. It's, it's good stuff. It's really good stuff. Always good when you can find something to relate to that, that helps, especially with, you know, coping mechanisms or anything to fuel like the positivity in the mind. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too, because it, it takes the approach, Zen Buddhism, you could be split into two sects, the Rinzai sect and the Soto sect, sect. And, and he falls into that Soto sect in that these books will never sell a million copies because they're not really self-help books. Like what Soto Zen does is it really is just like, yeah, like you, you really need like a solid grasp of reality. You're not working towards an enlightened state. Like when you sit in meditation, that's the enlightened state. Even if it just feels like you're distracted and annoyed that you're sitting and staring at a wall, like that's it. Like there's only one moment at all times approach it as best as you could. It's very much one of those things that speaks to me of like, you know, this is not something that's going to be like, just try to be as positive as much as possible. No, like you're going to get depressed. You're going to have issues. They just happen. And how do you deal with that? It's a very straightforward way to to do that. And I think he mentions throughout his books and he's written eight or nine books at this point. Like this is not, <laughs> this isn't anything that's going to catch fire because it's essentially just saying like, Hey, like just, you know what to do. Like it just, just, just strap in and and do it. Like your own personal psychologist, almost. It sounds like he's serving as almost. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, the the Zen aspect of it, I'm sure, is probably a helpful piece of it because that's something people are always trying to find as a way to mellow out, let the trials and tribulations of the day kind of leave the body and focus on something else that brings you joy or happiness in whatever way that is. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because it, it clears up a lot of misconceptions about Zen because, you know, things Zen, you think, oh, but it's, it's really not that like the Soto sect was really like, we're just getting back to basics. Like, okay, this is all about like meditation is really just, you're going to sit, you're going to try not like, it's okay if thoughts pop into your head, but you're not going to focus on them. You're going to stare at the wall and like, this is going to teach you if you do it enough, like for years, that this is how life is, okay? Like when something happens, it's not going to stay. It's in flux and like you're learning to deal with that. It's a very honest take because there's no there's no BS to it. There's no like, no, you just got to you gotta think positively or you got to escape that or you can do this. And it is really just brass tacks like, no, this is hard work, but you can do it. Like, you know, clear your schedule. You know, something accomplishing or achieving anything is going to be, you know, hard work. I've tried the meditation stuff before. This is before I was able to get myself in the right mindset with things. And I found what worked for me and what works for me is not going to work for everybody else. Right. Um, but like I used to, 
journal. I would journal every day, write down three. It was, um, I forget what the name of the journal is. I still have it on my bookshelf. I don't do it anymore because I, I've learned how to reflect in other ways now, but it was a good tool to help me achieve that at the time. You write three things you're grateful for and three good things that happened yep. to you or for you or around you that day. And it really helps. For me, positivity is a big thing, but I agree with you. Yes, you know, there's also you have to be a realist about things. Like, I would not go and tell somebody, you know, that bad things don't happen because they do. Like, it's almost how do you cope with that? How do you rationalize it? Yeah. And, you know, doing things like that. And I would do meditation at one point in time every morning. I would turn on this app to test out. It didn't entirely do it for me, but I felt relaxed. I did it like right after I wrote in my journal or right before. And it was a good little exercise and it helped me then transition to what I do now in my in, in other ways and in ways I've been able to control my own mind. And like you said, things come in, things go out and you learn how over time through practice, yeah. how to do that. And if you can't do it yourself, you ask somebody who either you admire or somebody that you see, you know, that that does it in the way that you want. You ask what they do. And it's just like anything like that. So, and a very interesting pick, AJ. Like I said, you always find the unique uh, unique things out there. Well, it's just, it helps that there's a lot of, you know, references to Godzilla because that gets, <laughs> gets me through it as well. But some of the- Is, that, who, is that your spirit animal? Yeah. You channel Godzilla. <laughs> well, his, his second book, which is the one I'm rereading right now, it's called Sit Down and Shut Up. Punk rock commentaries on Buddha, God, truth, sex, death, and Dogen's treasury of the right Dharma eye. And I don't have a physical copy anymore because that's a copy. Like I will buy a copy, I'll mark it up, and then I just somebody's like, "Ah, I'd be interested in reading that." I'm like, "Yeah, just take it." So I never have a copy on hand. But his favorite quote of mine is: "Is real wisdom is the ability to understand the incredible extent to which you bullshit yourself every single moment of every day." I think about that all the time. Something to get uh, really inside the head. Gets inside the head. Yeah. And it's just, it's great stuff. Like he does a chapter uh, on reincarnation called Lucy Lou's Panties. Don't ask why it's called that. Um, <laughs> he says like, if you want to believe in reincarnation, you have to believe that this life, what you're living through right now is the afterlife. You're missing out on the afterlife you looked forward to in your last existence by worrying about your next life. This is what happens after you die. Take a look. Like, it's really practical because it anticipates like people are going to, if you have no concept of Buddhism, particularly this sect, like it's, I know you're going to ask these questions, like, here's really what it is. Like, just, just sit down and do it and it'll be okay. <laughs> Interesting stuff. You yeah. know, it can't think of any, can't think of anything else. Almost sounds like a good note for us to end on. It's a good note to end on. And if I could recommend the audiobooks, um, the audiobooks are great because he records them in his kitchen and the cat walks across the keyboard a lot. So, <laughs> <laughs> and there's the cat now. <laughs> there's the cat now. All right. Well, all right, folks. Thank you for joining us in this episode today, uh, our summer reading picks. Hey, if you have summer reading picks that you're reading, feel free to email those to us at fullybookedpodcast at protonmail.com. You could also join our Discord, which will be in the show notes for this episode. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can see the show notes there in the episode beneath the clicking to play it. And if you'd like to join our newsletter, you could do so at makeshiftpress.org slash podcast, and you could receive our micro reviews. And we're in the process of writing a publicly available to read uh, review on our first book club book, 
The Girl Beneath the Sea. I've written my first portion of the article. I've sent it to AJ, our esteemed editor, to help uh, put together. (laughs) And um, yes, feel free to uh, sign up for the uh, newsletter and you can get our micro reviews. And AJ, anything else to add? I don't believe so. Happy summer reading, though. Try to read all those books. You can do it. And this book is over.